Okay. Kidney. Restored kidney. Oh, I know. I know what you're scared of. You know what you're scared of? Well, I'm terrible now, and if I like spit. Well, I don't think I'd spit over it. Not all that bad, actually. Oh, you always say that, and then you talk about it, and I'm more confused. I hope not, because if that's true, then I'm doing a bad job. It's not hard. And what you need to know about it isn't all that much, actually. But it's got electron microscopy. So what? If I show you all the ones that they've shown on boards, would that make you happy? Say yes, because that's what I'm going to do. All right. We're not going there right now, though. I want to get you set up for it. Okay. The first section you notice in the notes deals with your analysis. And what I'm going to do here is not actually go through each part of this, but as we get to different things that relate to things that are abnormalities in urine, then we'll do them. That way we don't have to waste all that time in duplicating everything. However, I do know ahead of time that there are a couple things that really I'm not going to be talking about, so I want to show you them. And as for this one right here, I want you to know that what a cast is. <clears throat> now, you know what it is when you have a broken extremity. Isn't it a mold of your leg, you know, or your arm? Well, a cast is a mold of whatever is going on in your nephron, in your tubule. And what it is is tam horse full protein that is congealing around whatever is present in that tubule at that time. And it makes a mold of it that's passed in the urine, and we can see it under the microscope. Guys, do you know how important that is? That means you don't have to do a renal biopsy to see what's going on in the tubules because the cast will tell you what's going on there. For example, if you did have glomerulonephritis, which by definition is inflammation of the glomerulus, don't you think you damage the capillaries and get hematuria? So don't you think there'd be RBCs in your nephron that would be trapped in the cast and you'll have an RBC cast that tells you, hey, you've got a glomerulonephritis going on there. Agreed? Don't you think that if you had renal tubular necrosis, you've already seen pictures of it, and those tubules are sloughing off uh, by coagulation necrosis from the basement membrane, don't you think they're going to form a cast and they're going to be called renal tubular casts and it will tell you that they have renal tubular uh, necrosis? Yes or no? Sure. Don't you think that if a woman or a man had acute pyelonephritis where they were neutrophils that were infiltrating the interstitium and the tubules, that there'll be a cast of those neutrophils called a white blood cell cast telling you that you have an infection in your kidney? Hmm? Don't you think that if you're spilling lipid in the urine in nephrotic syndrome, that you're going to form a cast of that fat and form a fatty cast, which you can see and polarize in the urine? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's so important, and yet most physicians, when they order a urinalysis, don't ever look at it for one, okay? And if they do look at it, they don't know how to interpret it for two. And that's been studied, by the way, as a, as a study in the literature. Urinalysis is one of the most common tests ordered, but one of the least common tests looked at because most physicians have no idea what it all means. And yet they're missing out. Next to a complete blood cell count, I believe the urinalysis has more information about what's going on in the patient 
than any other test. If you know what you talk, if you know if you know what how to interpret things. How about this? The very first thing that disappears when you have renal failure is the ability of the kidney to concentrate urine. That's the very first thing. That was a board question. That's before the BUN and creatinine have even thinking about increasing. That's before there are any renal tubular cats. Their ability to concentrate urine is screwed up. So how about this for something simple? How about taking a urine when a patient in the, in the first morning void after a patient's been sleeping overnight and doing a simple thing like a specific gravity of the urine and seeing what it is? Because specific gravity can tell you whether it's concentrated or a dilute urine. And how about if it specific gravity was greater than 1.023? So what would that mean to me? That would mean that the patient's concentrating urine, and I know for a fact that the kidneys are absolutely unequivocally normal. Is that a cheap test? Mm -hmm. But let's say after an overnight sleep, and I did a specific gravity on that urine, it's 1.010. That's a very, very hypotonic kind of thing. That means that this patient could not concentrate. That means the patient's in renal failure. Is that cheap? Is that simple? But did you know that? No. And yet, look at all that information. I have to do B1 creatinine because that wouldn't help you. Creatinine clearance, that wouldn't really help you. Simple thing doing a specific gravity. And a urine that should be concentrated if the patient's sleeping overnight. Okay? So I'm trying to get you revved up a little bit, maybe to, to learn a little bit about urinalysis because it's very, very important. Now, this is the most benign of all casts. It's sometimes hard to see because it's so ghost-like. But notice it's kind of fuzzy looking. It's kind of roundish. This is called a hyaline cast. It's basically a cast of a, a protein. Most of the time, it means nothing. Uh, I have them in my urine all the time after a really hard workout. You could spill a little protein normally in your urine. You might have a couple of hyaline casts. But most of, all, most of the time, it's actually a harmless cast, whereas all other casts usually have some pathologic significance. So I wanted to make sure you knew that a hyaline cast generally means nothing. I just wanted to show you a few crystals. And then we'll move on to the actual pathology. This is a uric acid crystal. They're kind of pretty, actually. Kind of looks like a, a star. Okay. The pH of the urine has to be acid to, uh, to form a uric acid crystal. Okay. So if you wanted to, let's say I had a patient with gout, and you wanted to stop these crystals from forming, and you know they form in an acid pH, could you please tell me what you'd want to do with the urine? Alkalinizer, could you please tell me how you could do that? Carbonic anhydrase inhibitor would do that because by blocking bicarbonate reclamation, you alkalinize the urine and you would prevent these stones from forming. So simple manipulation of the pH could prevent urate nephropathy in a patient. Okay, these I want you definitely to know because these are calcium oxalate crystals. To me, they look like the back of an envelope. Or if you wish, you're playing tic-tac-toe and you put an X in a box. That maybe is better for you if you know what tic-tac-toe is. Does that mean you tick, you tack, and you touch your toe? No. No. It's little X's and zeros. You know what? My little five-year-old grandson beat me in one game of tic-tac-toe. I couldn't believe it. He actually, really, without me letting him win, he actually won. And I just went, oh. He was so happy. All right. Now, why do I say, why is this important for you to know? Why? 
Well, first of all, they put them on exams. That, that's important. I think that would be enough right there. But in what context? Why would they want to put that there? How about somebody that's a straight person that comes in in a stuporous state, okay, and, and it's got an increased anion gap metabolic acidosis, and you're trying to figure out why. You do a urinalysis, and you see a whole pile of these. What did he drink? Ethylene glycol. How about that to begin with? Then how about what's the most common stone that we pass? Calcium oxalate. You don't honestly think that we won't have calcium oxalate crystals in a patient that's got a calcium oxalate stone, do you? And so they're very important because of these two conditions. Whoa. I'm going to remember this. Good. This other one, forget. They look like coffin lids, don't they? Yeah. Buffy the vampire. <laughs> Just trying to break her way out of the coffin underneath there. Well, I turned that sucker off right away. Buffy the Vampire. What does that mean? All right, guys, what is it? Of course it's a horseshoe kidney. They're not going to ask you that. <laughs> They're not going to ask you that. Okay. They're not even going to ask you which, which pole fuses. That's, you can memorize that. They're going to ask what this is. And now it's going to ask, what, what is restricting the movement of the horseshoe kidney? The inferior mesenteric arteries, the answer. Inferior mesenteric arteries, that's it right there, actually go over it and actually trap the horseshoe kidney behind it. That's what they asked on this. <laughs> Not that it was a horseshoe kidney. Of course it's a horseshoe kidney. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not that it can be seen in Turner syndrome. You can memorize that. They wanted an anatomy thing. They want to know what's, what's keeping it in place. What's preventing it from descending or ascending? Answer, the inferior mesenteric artery, which is this, is trapping it there. Whoa. That doesn't seem too important. I agree. But that's what they wanted to ask. Cystic diseases of the kidney. I hate anything to do with autopsies and kids because I love the little dudes. I have to show this because these two correlate with each other. It's all kinds of cystic diseases. This one's called infantile polycystic kidney disease, which is autosomal recessive. That means they are present at birth. Now, if this child, look at this poor little dude's kidneys. They're both poly, polycystic. Do you think this baby was urinating? What, so what do you think happened in the, uh, in the amniotic fluid? So that oligohydramnios, huh? Huh? And so that poor little dude then is in a... A, uh, an amniotic sac with hardly any amniotic fluid around it and therefore being having malformations related to pressure. Look at the nose. Look at the ears on this kid. This is a Potter's facies. Potter's facies. And it's a sign of oligohydramnios in a child with polycystic kidney disease. Guys, this poor little dude wasn't even able to breathe because there was hardly any fluid. And when it tried to breathe, it couldn't. In fact, the lungs are hypoplastic. They never really fully developed because they never, the poor little dude could not fill them up good enough. Isn't that sad? The little dude. It's called Potter's facies. Okay. Infantile polycystic kidney disease. By the way, they're not only in the kidneys, they're in the liver, 
thesis, they're in the pancreas thesis, and they're just not, just not here. Incompatible with life. Incompatible with life. Now, this is adult polycystic kidney disease. Now, please remember, this is not a kid that had infantile polycystic disease is now an adult. That was autosomal recessive. This is autosomal dominant, different disease. Are these cysts present at birth? Say no. No. Why? Because autosomal dominant diseases have delayed manifestations. Now, I hope you know what penetrance means, do you? Okay. Penetrance could mean that you have the abnormality when they look for it on the gene, but you wouldn't have any cystic kidney disease. There would be nothing there, but you do have the genetic abnormality, but you've never expressed it in your life. That's the good news. What's the bad news? The bad news is you'll transmit it to your kids. So you may not have any evidence of it whatsoever your entire life, but you can transmit it to, the, to your kids. That's another bad news. It's hard to recognize on the pedigree. And they do ask it on boards. Okay, Marfan's is a classic one where you can have the abnormality on your chromosome 15 and have nothing, no dislocated lens, no nothing. They're absolutely normal looking, but that person can pass it on to their kids. I know an example of that actually. It's a friend of my, my son's. Their daughter has Marfan's. Neither the mother or the father have any evidence whatsoever, but mommy has a family history of sudden death in her family, which they never were able to explain. So they went ahead and did chromosome studies, restriction fragment late polymorphism studies, to find out where it's, you know, and she had the abnormality in her gene, but had no manifestation, so she had no penetrance, but she did pass it on to her daughter. That's called incomplete penetrance. Just think of something sticking through, penetrating, penetrating. So if it can penetrate through, then it's manifesting itself. Uh, Philia polyposis has 100% penetrance. So if you have the gene, you've got the disease. But Marfan's has incomplete penetrance. You can have the gene and never express the disease. That's one of the biggest troubles that students have with genetics is that concept of penetrance. Now, I like the way I, uh, I put this together. And I can tell you that on my exam in 1965, there was that kidney and that, and that brain. No, not no, it's that kidney and this brain. I remember it as clear as a bell. So this is adult polycystic kidney disease. It comes up, these cysts, usually by 10, 11, 12 years of age. You will always develop hypertension, okay? And the hypertension is going to predispose to two kinds of bleeds in the brain. One could be the standard thing that you see with hypertension. That's where you make these Charcot-Bouchard aneurysms we talked about, rupture, and you get this. And we gave this as a complication of hypertension. Remember, that was a blood clot. Remember I said that they can stick needles through silent areas of brain and suck this out. Da, 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 da. So they could die of this. How would you interpret that, though? That's a brain. What's, what's, what's wrong with it? It's covered by brain. No, covered by brain. It's covered by what? Blood. Blood. That means what? If it's covered by blood. Blood got in the subarachnoid space and covered the entire brain. That means it couldn't be due to this. That means it was probably due to a ruptured berry aneurysm. There you go. Remember that, remember that classic thing you learned in, in medical school? When you ever have blood in the subarachnoid space, as a matter of fact, if you, uh, we get in our hotel here, we get that little U.S. News and World Report, and Sharon Stone, you know, she's recently in a hospital. She had a subarachnoid bleed. And there it was. She said, I had, it was the worst headache I've ever had. That's what they classically say. 
It's the absolute worst headache you ever had in your entire life when you have blood in the subarachnoid space. And she actually quoted that right as when we were doing talking to reporters. Actually quoted that. So that's what they always put in the stem of a question so you know they're talking about a subarachnoid bleed. They always have to put that in there. Okay, now, guys, they know that you know these things about the very aneurysm and all that stuff, and so they went on to the next subject with polycystic kidney disease, and that is mitral valve prolapse. Sure enough, that's what they did. So they gave a history of somebody that had hypertension, okay, had some abnormality in ultrasound in the renal pelvis area, and who had... Uh, and they described they click murmur. They didn't say mitral valve prolapse. They just described the click murmur thing. So they knew it was mitral valve prolapse. And they asked what was the patient's kidney disease, the cause of hypertension. The answer was adult polycystic kidney disease. So there's a high association of mitral valve prolapse with this. So I already know, being an educator, what the next one will be. Well, what's the next one after 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 the berry aneurysm thing, after the mitral valve prolapse is diverticulosis. Uh, there's a high incidence of diverticulosis in patients with adult polycystic kidney disease. So they're just going right down the line. But are they going to fool us? Are they going to fool us? Say no. No, they're not going to fool us. Because you already know and anticipate what they're going to try to do. Well, how would you do the diverticulosis one, Dr. Goyen? I'd be interested to see how you'd ask that one. A patient with hypertension has an abnormality on ultrasound in the renal area who has uh, lost 600 mLs of blood all of a sudden from their blood. Okay, so there's hematochesia. What's the most common cause of hematochesia? Diverticulosis. There you go. So I just changed it from a, from a cardiac sign to a butt sign. Hematochesia. There you go, all right? That's how you do it. I'll tell you. I'm glad to know that people have the same kind of interest that I do. <laughs> All right. Now, here's your bugaboo. Now we're getting into the glomerular stuff. Okay. All right. I'm going to show you how easy it is. You ready? Glomerular nephritis. Itis. 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 If it ends in itis, it's type 3 hypersensitivity reaction. How's that for starts? Okay, so does that, all right, so I'm going to say lipoid nephrosis. Is that, is that, is that, is that any immune disease? No, didn't end in itis. How about focal segmental glomerulosclerosis? Did that end in itis? No, so it must not be an immunologic disease. So you're getting the point? Good. How about IgA glomerulonephritis? Yes. Diffuse membranous glomerulonephritis? Yes. Diabetic glomerulosclerosis? No. Are you happy now so far? So far, that's pretty easy. Agreed? Okay. Now, when we say diffuse, what are we talking about? We're saying that when we do a renal biopsy, every single glomerulus has something wrong with it. So I'm showing the black here means there's something wrong. So there's three glomeruli, all three were abnormal. So by definition, that's diffuse. So you're saying, well, let's focal. Okay, okay. It means that not all the glomeruli are involved. So I'm showing two that are and one that isn't. So by definition, that's focal disease. Okay, now you've got a problem. What if the disease is focal and the disease in the glomerulus is focal? <laughs> you got a problem. So you could say focal, focal. Okay, that's dangerous because you can run into some bad words with that. Okay, so, you know, you got to be careful, you know, focal, 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 I'm doing okay so far, but I'm not going any further. I can tell you that because I know I'm going to screw up. 
So we've got to come up with another name that's not focal, but describes that within the glomerulus, it's not the whole glomerulus, it's the part. What are you going to come up with? Segmental. Doesn't that mean the same thing as focal? And so they came up with focal segmental. So it'd be something like this. This is a normal glomerulus. This is involved, so it's focal. And in that glomerulus, only one part of it's abnormal, segmental. Okay, so focal segmental. Is that easy so far? Good. All right. Then we use terms like proliferative. What does proliferate mean to you? Lots of them. So if you have more than 100 nuclei, don't count. In a glomerulus, consistently, then it's a proliferative type of glomerulonephritis. And all of them have that, diffuse proliferative glomerulonephritis. Now let's say you look at it, and you don't see a lot of dots. You just basically see, see thick membranes. Okay, okay, then it's membranous. Okay, what if you see both increased numbers of cells and thick membranes? Okay, no problem. Membranal proliferative glomerulonephritis. Actually, whoever made up the system for nomenclature actually did a pretty darn good job because I think it's pretty easy. So let's break. Okay, so we've gone through the nomenclature. Ooh, that sounds pretty sophisticated, doesn't it? Nomenclature. Whoa. Okay. So let's kind of look at uh, this schematic. Stepping on my worm. This is Dirofilaria imitus, and I just have a little thing hanging at the end of it. Remember, Dirofilaria imitus is the longest worm, right? No, you don't. It's obvious that you don't. No, no, you don't. Forget it. All right. Let's just make sure you understand a, a little bit of schematic anatomy so we, we're all talking the same thing. Okay, this is supposed to schematize a, a glomerular capillary. And you notice here that we have these endothelial cells uh, here present. And so that's the endothelial cells of the capillary. And then we have underneath this thing uh, a basement membrane. That's the basement membrane there. And then on the outside of the basement membrane are these visceral epithelial cells that look like they have feet. And so that's why they, they, since they look like feet, okay, they call them podocytes. So these these little podocytes here. And there's little spaces, you know, between these uh, feet. Don't you have spaces between your toes? Very good. And so those are spaces between your toes. And those are called slit pores. Now, so we go from blood, endothelial cell, basic membrane, visceral epithelial cells. So if there's visceral, there must be uh, uh, parietal epithelial cells, and those line the Bauman's capsule. Who makes the basement membrane? The answer is the visceral epithelial cell does. This dude, the podocyte, makes, synthesizes the glomerular basement membrane. What is the, why is the, what keeps albumin out of our urine normally? The strong negative charge of the glomerular basement membrane, okay? Who is responsible for the, for the, uh, the strong negative charge of the basement membrane? It's a glycosaminoglycan, who am I? Heparan sulfate, not heparin, that's an anticoagulant. Heparan, H-E-P-A-R-I-N, Heparan, no, H-E-P-A-R-A-N. Sulfate is strong negative charge. So I'm asking a very simple question. 
if we immunologically damage the visceral epithelial cell, what do we automatically also damage? The basement membrane. Very good. That's a good concept to remember, which means you're going to be spilling a lot of protein in your urine, doesn't it? Which means that you could potentially have nephrotic syndrome if you spilt more than three and a half grams in 24 hours, doesn't it? I didn't hear yes on that one, just kind of contemplating it there, huh? All right, so now that we know a little bit about the anatomy of this thing and schematic, let's talk about some of the tests that one does on a renal biopsy in evaluating glomerulonephritis. Of course, two stains. We do the routine H&E, hematoxin and neosin stains. We oftentimes do silver stains. Uh, we oftentimes do whatever. Who cares what other stains we use? Irrelevant. We do immunofluorescent stains. Ooh. And we know that the pattern could be linear or they could be granular. Some people say lumpy, bumpy. So there's only basically two patterns. It's either going to be a linear pattern or it's going to be a lumpy, bumpy, granular pattern. Okay. So what? What does this mean? Patterns. What, what are these things? They're immune complexes, guys, or they're antibodies that they're detecting because immunofluorescence is where you take the biopsy and you have antibodies with a fluorescent tag on them. Let's say you wanted to see if there was IgA in that glomerulus. And so you'd have uh, anti-IgA antibodies with a little fluorescent tag. And if there was any, it would attach to it and produce fluorescence there that you could look at. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's IgA there because it fluoresced. Or IgG, there has tags for that. Or C3, there's tags for that. Fibrinogen, there's tags for that. And so we can get an idea of what, what's in the glomerulus, okay? And we can get an idea about what its pattern is. Is it a linear pattern or is it a lumpy, bumpy, granular pattern? It doesn't tell us where these different things are. It just tells, them, tells us that they're there, okay? What tells us where immune deposits, immunocomplexes are located is electron microscopy. That will, and we'll see how that looks. Okay, so we do stains, we do immunofluorescence, and we do electron microscopy. So how are we going to really ever tell that the podocytes are fused? You can only really tell that by electron microscopy because they're so small. And so we need to use that to determine a couple things. So let's do something simple now, and I'm going to show you the two patterns. This antibody here, this little Y-shaped thing, remember, they kind of look like that, don't they? Like antibodies, they look like... Little Y's, don't you? And that's kind of showing this, right? Remember, you've got to have two antigen recognition sites on an antibody. Isn't that correct? And then you have the heavy chain right over here. Okay, so let's say this is good pastures. And these are IgG anti-basement membrane antibodies. Okay? So, they're in the blood. They get into the glomerular capillary. So, what are they directed against, please? The basement membrane. Okay? So, here's the basement membrane. So, don't you think that wherever there was a spot on that basement membrane, you'd see an IgG antibody. Yes or no? Okay, so let's say this is a glomerular basement membrane right here, and I'm an IgG antibody. Everywhere there was a space on here, you'd see an IgG antibody lining along it. There wouldn't be one spot on that basement membrane that wouldn't have one of those IgG antibodies on it, because there's millions and millions of these things. So what if we did a fluorescent tag for IgG overlying a glomerulus, what will we see? You'd see basically an outline of the, all the basement membranes in that entire stinking glomerulus. Look at it. It's showing you all the basement membrane. Is that linear? Do you see any gaps anywhere in there? 
So whenever you see this linear pattern like this, where it's just all like that, all over the place, you know it's good pressure syndrome. End of discussion. So the, 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 the most common cause of a linear pattern on an immunofluorescence is what? Good pressure syndrome. All right, let's go back to this now. What about immune complexes? Again, let's review because it's so... I mean, I just had these kinds of questions from my, my second years. They, they don't get what immune complexes are. Neither do you, a lot of you. An immune complex is an antigen and an antibody attached to that antigen, and it's circulating in your bloodstream. So it's an antigen and antibody complex. That's what an immune complex is. Give me an example, okay? Lupus, immune complex disease. What's the antigen? DNA. What's the antibody? Anti-DNA. So they attach to each other, and they float around in your bloodstream. And they deposit in different places. In this case, they're going to be depositing in the uh, glomerular capillary. We'll see where later. Okay. That's an immune complex. That means it's type 3 hypersensitivity. Now, because they're immune complexes, they're larger, certainly, than individual antibodies. Wouldn't you agree? Because you have antigens, and you have antibodies attached together. Agree? So they're bigger. They have different solubilities oftentimes. They have different charges. And so they're not going to deposit in a nice, neat fashion in the glomerulus. Okay? And so depending on their size, depending on their charge, will depend on where they locate themselves. So if they're very big, take that one. That's pretty darn big over there. That probably is not going to be able to get through here. So it's just going to deposit right underneath the endothelial cell nucleus. And so we would have to call that a subendothelial deposit because it's so big, they can't get through the basement membrane and get under this, this podocyte over here. They're just too big. And lupus, Clara, characteristically, is like that. The immune complexes of lupus, they can't get through the basement membrane. Just, they just hang out underneath the uh, endothelial cells, okay? And find a little hiding place in there. Well, when we have post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, and those immune complexes, which are bacterial antigen and antibody against it, they're very, very small. They're very, very soluble. They can actually go all the way through the basement membrane, and therefore they can deposit underneath the epithelial side. And so we're showing a couple of immune complexes in here depositing on the epithelial side, okay? So notice it's right underneath that epithelial cell. So we call that a sub-epithelial deposit, okay? Now, how are we going to know where these deposits are? We can't find them by immunofluorescence, but we can see where they are on by electron microscopy because they're electron dense, meaning they increase the density wherever they are. And you'll see what, that, what I mean by that momentarily. So, agreeing with me, I hope, that immune complexes have different solubilities, different charges, and they're randomly uh, uh, going underneath the endothelium or underneath the subepithelial surface. They're not going to have a nice, smooth, linear pattern like anti-basement membrane antibodies. Thus, it's certainly not going to look like this, but how about this? If anyone says that's linear, I'm going to shoot you. So what isn't this? This is not good pastures. This is any immune complex disease you want to give me. Lupus, post-septococcal, it could be IgA glomerulonephritis. Now, I can get a little bit of hint on what it is, depending on what's in there. For example, What's the only disease, only glomerulonephritis, that you can, can actually only truly diagnose with immunofluorescence? IgA glomerulonephritis. Because if you're going to call it IgA glomerulonephritis, that means this is not IgG in there. That means it's IgA. 
So the only way you can diagnose accurately IgA glomerular nephritis is to prove that is IgA and nothing else. That's a great board question, actually. Okay, so this is what we call a granular or lumpy, bumpy pattern. And whenever you see it, what does it mean? Immunocomplex type 3 disease, period. That's what it means. Now, remember, anti-basement membranes and anti-basement membrane antibodies against the basement membrane is not a type 3, is a type 2. Whereas immune complexes is type 3. All right. Here we go. There are two types of glomerular nephritis. Aren't you happy? Not really. I don't go with you with thumb. Okay, that's, but I'm sorry. It just happens to be there is. It's either nephritic or nephrotic. Or can it be both at the same time? No. Okay. Give a life, will you? Okay, I will. But the answer is no. Could one go into another one? Yeah. You mean it can become start out nephritic and become nephrotic? Yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand. How am I gonna know? It's got a definition. If you know the definition, you know. So what's the definition of nephritic syndrome? First of all, it's got a unique cast. And you're looking at it. What color is that? What color is that? <laughs> it's red. And it looks like, you can actually even see a biconcave disc. You can even see a central. So it's a red blood cell, and it's in a mold. What is it? Red blood cell cast. It's unique to nephritic types of glomerular nephritis. Two, because you have inflammation of the glomerulus, okay, you are going to spill protein, but not greater than three and a half grams in 24 hours, because if it did, then it'd be nephrotic, because it's the definition. So it's mild to moderate proteinuria. You're spilling protein, but not to the same levels as nephrotic syndrome, which means that you would not have pinning edema and ascites with something like this. Now, if you are uh, inflaming the glomerulus, would you have oliguria? Sure. I mean, I mean the the, uh, the glomerular capillaries would all be swollen up, and so you would the glomerular filtration rate would decrease. Yeah, yeah, you'd have oliguria. Okay, yeah, you'd have oliguria. Okay. Are you decreasing the reabsorption of sodium by doing that? Or is it, is, is it, are you not filtering as much sodium as you normally did? Yeah. So do you think it builds up a little bit, retaining a little sodium? Yeah. Okay. So you have run the risk that if you're retaining a little sodium of hypertension. So classically what you see in nephritic types of glomerular nephritis is hematuria, red blood cell cast, oliguria, hypertension, uh, and a mild to moderate proteinuria. That's it. That's the definition of it. Okay? I'll give you the definition of nephrotic syndrome. The definition of nephrotic syndrome, it's a different cast, first of all. It's a fatty cast, which we'll show you. So it's not a red blood cell cast. It's fatty. And second, you have greater than three and a half grams of protein in 24-hour urine sample. And third, you're going to definitely have putting edema if you lost that much 
Okay, so it's absolutely, unequivocally, totally different than nephritic. There's absolutely no way you could confuse it. So if you started out nephritic, that means you had RBC cast, moderate proteinuria, okay, and all that business. Then all of a sudden you start seeing pitting edema, you check the 24-hour urine protein, it's greater than 3.5 grams, so that nephritic went into a nephrotic, and you probably also see some fatty cast showing up. So that's how you could tell you're moving from one to the next. Now, most of the time it doesn't do that, but it is possible to do that. It is possible. So let's just deal. There are not a lot of these guys. There are not a lot of these, so, so don't go crappy on me now here. There's not a lot of these things. So there's not a whole lot you're responsible for knowing. All right. All the glomeruli look like this, diffuse. There are too many nuclei in here, definitely over 100 proliferative glomerulonephritis. Okay. This patient had a had scarlet fever two weeks ago, now presents with hematuria, uh, RBC cast, mild to moderate proteinuria, uh, hypertension. He's got a little bit of periorbital puffiness, which you always see if you're retaining a little bit of salt. Which diagnosis? Post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Very good. Now all we want to do is look at our first electron micrograph. All right. Now you got to orient yourself. Oh, I'm getting disoriented. Well, just look at this and I'll orient you. That's a lumen. So what, what, what must it be a lumen of? Capillary. Okay, so if you know that's a lumen and you've got this thing over here that's, that's bump on, on the, right, on the, right, on, right on the lumen there, that must be an endothelial cell. Good. And what do we know is under an endothelial cell? Basement membrane. So that must mean that this grayish stuff over here is all basement membrane here. And therefore, on this side over here, this must, uh, this must be the what side? The epithelial side. Okay. Now, this is all normal glomerular basement membrane. Da, 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 da. What the heck are these boulders there that are denser than the normal glomerular basement membrane? Immune, immune complexes. In this particular case, bacterial antigen antibody immune complexes. Now, which side are they closest to? Are these things right underneath that endothelial cell? Looks to me like there's a space between them and that, so they're not closer to that, but do they look like they're closer to the epithelial side? So they are subepithelial deposits. Now, it would be good enough to call this post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis. In most cases, uh, with some cortical steroid therapy, it goes away. Every now and then it can come back. I have a second-year medical student. Every now and then gets a little bit of hematuria and RBC casts, uh, but it goes away. That's it. Okay. Now, I'm going to change. Uh, let's just do another one. This patient's a woman, 35. She has a positive serum ANA with a rim pattern. So we have a rim pattern on a serum ANA. That means you have anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies present. So what does she have? Lupus. Now you all know that lupus uh, almost always involves the kidneys. About six different types. You only need to know the most common one. That's type 4. You don't even know to know it's called type 4. And it's a diffuse proliferative glomerulonephritis. That's the most common overall one that's seen in lupus. And this is an example of it over here. Now you can see there's definitely got more nuclei in it, so it's proliferative. Okay. It's got a couple little what they call wire loops. Forget that. That's not important. The point is, you know it's lupus because the history said it was lupus. And you got a diffuse proliferative glomerulonephritis. 
And so let's see what the electron micrograph looks in this place. Now, this one's a lot easier because you can actually really orient yourself quite well because clearly what are these things? Those are podocytes. So, you know, that's the epithelial side. So that's easy. Look at those podocytes. Look at that big one there. Boom. Boom. That's Bigfoot. Right there's Bigfoot right there. Okay. So if that's the epithelial side, then this must be the lumen. Agree? These little crab-like structures here must be, what? Endothelial cells. And all this black stuff here in the basement, under, in the basement membrane must be immune deposits. And what do you think those deposits are? DNA, anti-DNA, immune deposits. Okay? Would you agree that they're right smack underneath the endothelial cell? Yes or no? So why would you describe their location? Subendothelial deposits. Okay. That's it. Whoa, look at this. This is a closer view of this one. Just in case you were having problems with vision. Okay. Here's that same one. Isn't that nice, nice and big? What are these? Podocytes. What are those spaces between them? Huh? Split pores. Are they fused? No. Because if they were fused, then it would be what? Nephrotic syndrome. But they ain't fused. Okay. And here's the uh, lumen, there's your endothelial cells, and here's that immune deposit. Notice this is all, this is normal basement membrane there. This is all, look at that, look how diffuse that is, that, that electron, that those, uh, those immune complexes are. That's because it's so big they can't get all the way through that basement membrane. Okay, how many of you had crescent rolls for breakfast? None of you, so I guess we'll just go on to the next slide. <laughs> Okay, I want you to look at this. What's this right in here? Glomerulus. Okay, but it looks like it's being surrounded by a bunch of proliferating cells that must be parietal uh, epithelial cells because it's not in the glomerulus. And doesn't this look like a crescent around it? If you look at it, there's a crescent, kind of a crescent look to it. That's why it's called crescentic glomerulonephritis. This is the worst glomerulonephritis you can have because... Uh, within about three months, you go into acute renal failure and you'll die unless you're on dialysis. So, crescent rolls might taste good, but if you have them in your glomerulus, you're going to die. Now, many, many diseases can have crescentic glomerulonephritis, but the only one, only one you need to know is good pasture syndrome. Good pasture syndrome classically produces a Crescentic glomerulonephritis. Now, we're still nephritic, guys. We haven't left nephritic yet, so it's a nephritic syndrome. But when we do the biopsy, we see crescents, which means portends a bad diagnosis. Bad diagnosis. And it's most commonly seen in good pasture syndrome. There are many others. You don't need to know them. But if you're interested, polyarteritis nodosa, wagonous granulomatosis, and other types of things can end up this way. You with me so far? Uh, hopefully this is not too hard so far because I don't think it's hard. When you're the one that's teaching us, I hope it's not hard for you. Okay. We're done with nephritic. Say good. Okay. <laughs> now, is this a red blood cell cast? Say no. This is a polarized specimen, and these are called Maltese crosses. Why? Because they look like the Christian cross in the island of Malta, which I happened to have visited in the Navy when I was parachuted in, because I was a commando. 
You don't actually believe that, do you? <laughs> you did. You believed it. You believed it. Because you wanted to believe it. No. There's no way in God's green earth I'm going to jump out of a plane with something hanging on my back that some idiot packed. <laughs> Not a chance. Not a chance. I have a basic rule of thumb. I never, ever do any sport where my life depends on a piece of equipment, i.e., rock climbing, i.e., jumping out of a, out of a, out of, out of a plane, i.e., having a little uh, rubber thing called a bungee hanging to me. Putting a tank with air on my back and breathing through it and going under the water. Doesn't qualify. I'm at a snorkel. That's okay. A snorkel's fine because you can't go too far, get into too much trouble. It's my basic rule of thumb, just to make sure that you understand that. So I might be macho, macho sounding, but actually, I'm a total coward related to those things. <laughs> Actually, this is cholesterol in your urine. And when you polarize it, it looks like a Maltese cross. And it is the pathognomonic cast of nephrotic syndrome. You only see it in nephrotic syndrome. So what's the definition? The definition is greater than three and a half grams for 24 hours, presence of fatty casts in the urine, okay, and you're also, of course, going to have ascites probably and pitting edema and all that kind of stuff along with it. You run the risk of spontaneous peritonitis if you're a kid, organism, strep pneumonia. If you're an adult, E. coli. There you go. Okay. Uh, this picture's been on many, many, many boards, as was that RBC cast that you saw for nephritic. All right. Let's look at this. This is, a, this is an electron micrograph from an eight-year-old boy that had an upper respiratory infection one week ago and now looks like the Pillsbury Doughboy. This kid is as diffusely, has a pitting edema all over the body, has ascites. We call it anasarca when it's just literally all over the place. He, he's neurotensive. He doesn't have a high blood pressure. Actually, they do not do renal biopsies anymore, but I'll say they did. They did a renal biopsy in this kid. They did an H&E stain. They didn't see anything. There's absolutely normal appearing glomerulus, did immunofluorescent, nothing. Didn't see anything there. And then they did an electron micrograph. You're looking at it. What's that? It's a red blood cell. So what must that be in? Glomerular capillary lumen. If that's true, then these little jobbies here must be endothelial cells. Okay? All right. So what's this here? Basic membrane. Anybody see electron dense deposits in there? I don't see any. Looks perfectly clear to me. What's this side? Podocytes. Let's just follow. Let's follow it along. Fused. Fused, 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 fused. It's not fused. Therefore, it's not fused. But the, most of the rest of it is. Okay? Don't believe this all or none thing like most medical students do. Okay? So, yeah. Okay, that one didn't fuse yet. Maybe one hour from now it would have been. Okay? Fusion of the podocytes. That's always seen in any cause of nephrotic syndrome. You always see fusion of the podocytes. So we haven't seen anything on H&E. You've got a kid with nephrotic syndrome. 
We've got, we've got Maltese crosses and all that crap in our urine. What's the kid have? Lipoid nephrosis. Now, they still haven't figured out why it is that when the albumin levels go down very, very low because of losing all that albumin, why it is that the liver makes more cholesterol. Nobody really knows that. All patients with nephrotic syndrome have hypercholesterolemia. And since they have glomerular disease, then some of that cholesterol can get into the urine, and that's why you form casts with cholesterol. You don't normally have cholesterol in your urine. Only in nephrotic syndrome would it be there. And it looks like Maltese crosses. This is called lipoid nephrosis, lipoid giving honor to the presence of cholesterol. Uh, in the urine, lipoid, lipid, lipoid, nephrosis, another name, minimal change disease is another term. So why is this happening? The answer is that they've lost their negative charge to their glomerular basic membrane. So they have no negative charge and actually albumin actually now can get through. And so they actually have a very selective proteinuria. The only protein that's really increased in their urine is albumin and it's greater than three and a half grams in 24 hours. You treat it with corticosteroids in a few months, you usually get a, a, a remission, it might come back again, but after about a year or so, it goes away, never to come back again. So this is the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome in kids. Okay. This is a patient who's HIV positive. In fact, he's actually got an AIDS-defining lesion already, so he has AIDS. And you notice that he has... Uh, pitting edema. So you check his urine out, and you notice it's greater than three and a half grams in 24 hours. He's got fatty casts in his urine. He has hypertension, unlike kid with lipoid nephrosis. So you do a biopsy. You already know what you're going to see because it's the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome in AIDS patients anyway. And so we look at it, and we see that some of the glomeruli are totally normal. Others are abnormal, but only a part of the glomerulus. Notice that's okay, but then this little part and so we said we can't call that focal focal for, for reasons I've already explained. We're going to call this focal segmental. And since the immunofluorescence on this uh, and electron microscopy didn't show electron-dense deposits, it's called glomerulosclerosis. So it's focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, and that's what this is. It's the most common glomerular lesion in AIDS patients, and I might also add intravenous drug abusers. They both get this type of disease. This is next to rapidly progressive crescentic glomerular nephritis, the next worst glomerular disease you can have. So in other words, nothing's good in an AIDS patient. I mean, let's just figure it out. I mean, nothing's good. Nothing's going to have a good prognosis. Everything's going to be bad. Do they ask this? Absolutely. Absolutely. You better believe it. All right. Let's look at this one. This is an adult. This patient has pitting edema in the whole bit, fatty cast the whole bit, greater than three and a half grams the whole bit. So you biopsy the dude. Let's all the glomeruli look like this. Now I think you could pretty well eyeball this and say that there's not a whole lot of dots there. So the nuclei, the, the number of cells of nuclei there is not uh, not over a hundred. So it's not a proliferative. But I think look how prominent those basement membranes are. They're thick. This is diffuse membranous glomerular nephritis. This is the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome in adults. I'm not going to show you the electron microscopy because I'm just going to tell you it's subepithelial, and you already know what a subepithelial deposit is, so why look at another one and get yourself all nervous? 
Now, what an interesting thing that happens. When you do silver stains on these patients and you magnify them, you can actually see that's the capillary, the lumen. This must be an endothelial. That must be the basement membrane there. And then this is the epithelial site. It looks like you put your finger in a 220 socket. Okay? It looks like your hair is not in. That's why this is called hair on end appearance or epimembranous spikes. These actually are the immunocomplexes under silver state. And they like this. So whenever you see on the outside of the glomerular capillary these little spike-like lesions, and they'll give you a good history for nephrotic syndrome, that's diffuse membranous glomerular nephritis. It's the only one that looks like that. Now, lots of things can cause this, literally hundreds, from drugs to infections to cancer to nothing. Okay? And some of the drugs are very interesting, like non-steroidals. Non-steroidals can produce nephrotic syndrome, and this is the one it produces. Hepatitis B is in boy can produce this one, diffuse membranous glomerular nephritis. Our little friend Captopril, the king of the treatment of heart failure, the king of the treatment of diabetic nephropathy, has a bad side. It can also produce nephrotic syndrome. So drugs, lots of drugs can do this. Infections, hepatitis B I already mentioned. P. malariae, another malaria, syphilis, okay, all these things can also produce. A cancer can do this too. It could be a colon cancer and the, and the immune complex of CEA, anti-CEA antibodies can produce this. It's not good. It, it, it smolders around a little bit, but eventually you're going to renal failure and you potentially could die unless you get a renal transplant. And that's all I really have to say about diffuse membranous glomerular nephritis. Almost done, guys, actually, with these. In fact, this is about the last one. This is type 1 and type 2 membranoproliferative glomerular nephritis. Does it end in itis? Does it end in itis? Therefore, then it's a new complex. Okay. Now, type 1 membranoproliferative glomerular nephritis has a relationship with hepatitis C. Now, how are you going to remember that? Okay. Membranous B. Okay, what's the next letter after B? C. Membranoproliferative. C. In other words, you're adding more to the membranous. Proliferative It's the next letter up. C. So membranous B, membranoproliferative C. Now, there's another relationship with C, isn't there? Cryoglobulinemia. Remember that? There's another relationship with B. It's a vasculitis. Could you tell me what that is? Polyarteritis nodosa. Good. Now you're making integrations. Now you're making integrations. All right. So that's the type 1 one. It's actually a uh, sub, it's actually a sub endothelial deposit. It produces nephrotic syndrome. Type 2 is a little less common. And in this one, there's an autoantibody against C3. It's called the C3 nephritic factors. And so what happens is, it, 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 it causes C3 convertase to become overactive and it's constantly breaking complement down. So the lowest complement levels that you'll ever see in any glomerular nephritis is seen in type 2 uh, disease. And it's called dense deposit disease because the entire basement membrane is an immune complex. All right. You've heard of the term tram tracking? Huh? Isn't that stupid that they made you memorize? Tram tracks. Well, the tram tracks, and this is not to be confused with Amtrak, this is tram track, okay, 
is due to this, guys. Watch this. This is an endothelial cell right there. Okay. These are mesangial cells, the structural uh, component of a glomerular capillary. And notice that the mesangial cell is 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 uh, extending itself between the basement membrane, which is this black thing, and the endothelial cell. So that would make this look like a tram track because you can't see this, but you could see that, you could see that, that would be clear, that looks like a track. And so that's all tram tracking is, is this kind of this mesangial process going in between the endothelial cell and the basement membrane, <clears throat> it produces that. Tram tracking, proliferative, nephrotic syndrome. Done. 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 Look at this. I call this Christmas ball disease. Oh, yeah? I call it golf ball disease. Good for you. Good for you. All right. I don't care what you call it, but when you see these big round balls on H&E, on H&E stain, that is diabetic glomerulosclerosis. This is diabetic renal disease. All right. Now, let's discuss this one because this one is a very, very, very importante. That means important. All right, now, I'm going to make this for fun, the afferent arterial and the efferent arterial. Does anyone notice anything unusual about the color? What's this called when you have excess red in it? Hyaline arteriolosclerosis. Didn't we say that was a small vessel disease of diabetes and hypertension? Didn't we? Okay, so we're seeing it here, aren't we? Okay, now watch this. The very first vessel that is hyalinized is the efferent arterial. I don't know why, but it is. So let's make believe this is normal. That's the efferent. Let's say this one is hyalinized. All right, now, now, you have renal fizz, so you should be able to tell me that if the lumen is narrow in the efferent arterial, what the glomerular filtration rate should be. Increase. Whoa, very good. You learned that. That's right. So what's the creatinine clearance? Increased. So, you know, am I saying that in early diabetic nephropathy that you actually have an increased creatinine clearance and glomerular filtration rate? Yep. Why? Because the efferent arterial is hyalinized and it's kind of obstructed. Is that bad? Well, I would think that uh, glomerulus is going to take quite a pounding there for about maybe 10 years. Don't you think that maybe that might injure it a little bit? That's called hyperfiltration damage. Let's throw something in on this, though. What did we say was the process where glucose attached to an amino acid in a protein? What did we call that? Non-enzymatic glycosylization. So let's say that's also going on because this patient's not watching themselves too well. And so we're non-enzymatically glycosylating the glomerular basement membrane. Ooh. What did we say would happen when you, when you glycosylate a basement membrane? What does it make it permeable to? Protein. Now, I want you to put these two together. You've got all this pressure on the glomerular capillary because of the efferent arterial, and you're also non-enzymatically glycosylating the glomerular basement membrane, rendering it permeable to protein. Do you think maybe you're going to start spilling some protein in the urine? What do you think? Big time. That's called, when you initially start seeing it, that's called microalbuminuria. Will the standard dipstick for protein detect that? Nope, not sensitive enough. There are special dipsticks that are available that can detect those small amounts. They're called microalbuminuria dipsticks. Now, what does it mean when your diabetic patient has a positive 
uh, dipstick for microalbumin. What are you going to do about it? You're going to give them an ACE. You're going to give them angiotensin-converting enzyme. Why? Because you want to stop the progression of this. Well, how is it going to do that? All right. Listen up. The afferent arterial is, uh, and its caliber is controlled by who? PGE2. Okay? The efferent arterial's caliber is controlled by angiotensin 2. And what does it normally do to the efferent arterial? Constricted. That's the answer. Can you put it together? If you give a person an angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor, what happens to angiotensin 2 levels? It decreases. So if it was decreased and you took off the vasoconstricted element that it normally has on it, even though this was hyalinized a little bit, wouldn't it open up the lumen a little bit? Yes or no? Would that take the pressure off the glomerulus? Would that decrease the glomerular filtration rate and also uh, kind of decrease the amount of damage from that constant pounding, pounding, pounding on that glomerulus. Yes, that's how it works. Now, obviously, it's not going to do dork if you don't get on that patient and say, buddy, you've got to get your glycosylated hemoglobin under 6% because this is not going to, this ACE inhibitor is not magic. It's taking the pressure off your glomerulus, but you have to get that glucose in a normal range because it has nothing to do with non-enzymatic glycosylization. The ACE inhibitor is not going to prevent that. So you've got to have perfect glycemic control from now on. Otherwise, you're going to go into chronic renal disease. You've got to read in the right act. And if they can do that, this ACE inhibitor will prevent the progression of the disease. Not only that, it also has an added benefit. Diabetics commonly have hypertension. It'll control their hypertension as well. So you get two for one with an ACE inhibitor uh, when you're trading them to prevent the progression of diabetic glomerulosclerosis. Now, some of you are probably wondering, what is this pink crap? Actually, it's type 4 collagen in the mesangium. It just builds up in there. Uh, in patients that have diabetes and it forms these big, big circles. I kind of like the fact that they're there because it's very easy for students when they see a picture and they see these big old circles, these big old balls. Remember, remember, diabetic glomerulosclerosis, Christmas ball disease or golf ball disease, whatever you want to call it, whatever, just remember these look like balls in here, okay, that's fine. And then kind of look around, see if you can see the afferent and efferent, and always put it in the, in the picture so you can see that this hyaline arterial sclerosis, say, I know this is a diabetic kidney, okay. Some people call chemostil Wilson's disease, they don't usually like to use names on, uh, on exams. The correct term is nodular glomerulosclerosis. Understand? That's it. That's it for diabetes. Okay. Amyloid. Uh, one of the favorite places for amyloid to deposit is in the kidneys. Remember, amyloid is a special protein, as we told you. When you stain it with Congo red and then you uh, polarize it, it has an apple green birefringence. Now, this isn't the best picture of that. Okay, but this is supposed to be apple green birefringence, but it doesn't look like it, so I'm going to help you. Do you know what a Granny Smith apple looks like? That light green? That's exactly what amyloid is supposed to look like when you polarize it after you do a Congo red stain. When they talk about apple green birefringence, it's the exact same color as the green color on a Granny Smith apple. So the next time you see a Granny Smith apple and it's green and you bite into it, say, I'm biting into amyloid. 
Okay, and that way you remember. Also, if you have no idea what a fruity breath is and diabetic ketoacidosis, get your seafood gum and just smell what it looks like. Don't let the people in the front desk see you. Otherwise, you'll have to buy it. You smell it, you buy it type of thing. Okay, just kind of just, okay. And it's kind of, that smell is what acetone smells like on the breath. And then you got it all made. So in other words, we haven't left nephrotic syndrome because I didn't say we left it yet. So am I saying that diabetic nephropathy is associated with nephrotic syndrome? Absolutely. And am I saying that amyloid is associated with nephrotic syndrome? Absolutely. So what do we have? A lot more diseases than with nephritic, huh? We've got lipoid nephrosis, most common cause in kids. Focal segmental glomerulonephrosis, IV drug abuse, AIDS. Diffuse membranous glomerulonephritis, most common one in adults. Type 1, type 2, membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis. Type 1, hepatitis C relationship. Type 2, autoantibody against C3, lowest C complement levels. Then we have diabetic glomerulosclerosis and amyloid, all nephrotic syndrome. Okay. The last one is the most common one. <laughs> and it doesn't fit either one of these things. Um, I wish it did, but it doesn't. And that's IgA glomerulonephritis, otherwise known as Burgers, not to be confused with Burgers disease. Remember, I alluded to the fact that IgA glomerulonephritis is probably a, a variant, if not the same thing, as Enoch-Schoenlein's purpura. The reason for that is it is an immunocomplex disease, IgA, anti-IgA uh, antibodies, and so is Hanok Schoenlein's purpura. And if you recall my, my little scenario I gave you with the palpable purpura and the buttocks and legs, I said it was polyarthritis, palpable purpura, a little bit of GI bleed, and hematuria and RBC cast, remember? So I guess it fits a little bit more nephritic uh, than, uh, than nephrotic, so maybe we can put it under that if you want. When you do uh, immunofluorescence, all of it's taken up in the mesangium. That's where all those immune complexes are. Here's how it presents, guys. In kids, it presents with uh, episodic episodes of gross hematuria. Goes away. Might come back maybe a couple years later. In adults, it usually presents as episodic uh, uh, bouts of microscopic hematuria. And so that's how it usually goes. You know, you just have a little bit of hematuria. You go to the doc, you know, and they see RBC cast in there. And then it goes away, Okay. Maybe a couple months later, after a cold or something like that, you start noticing it again. It's that kind of thing, on and off, on and off. Hematuria, RBC cast, a little bit of proteinuria, no hypertension. And then, of course, the nephrologist is thinking in their head without telling you, uh, when it starts getting a little bit worse, okay, maybe 10 years down the pike, I'm going to biopsy and prove that it, what it is, what I think it is. And then they'll do that, and they'll prove that it's IJ glomerulonephritis. Eventually, over 10, 15, 20 years, it'll do a job on you. So it's not exactly benign, but it is the most common of all the glomerulonephritis, and it is type 3 disease. Now we're done. Okay, was that bad? Was that, is it doable? Is it something that you have to go over again, but it's doable? Okay, that you can remember those things. Okay, I, I think it should be. All right, now because I have to take a pee so bad, I'm actually feeling kind of urea, uh, urea thing. Why don't we take our break now, okay? And 10 minutes, I'm still not giving you time off just because I have to pee, okay? So it says 346 plus 10 is roughly 356.
When you hear me talking, you know it's time. Remember I was saying that uh, if you know certain types of uh, physical diagnostic findings, certain, uh, certain types of uh, laboratory tests and what they mean, how you can oftentimes make the diagnosis. Well, I can tell you for a fact that if you know how to interpret a B1 creatinine ratio, you'll get a lot of questions right. Okay? And will they give you the ratio? No. But will they give you the B1 value and the creatinine value? Yes. Okay, so this is very important. I'd listen up on this because you'll be able to separate out prerenal azotemia versus renal failure by a simple VUN creatinine ratio. If you know what it means, you know how to do it, you'll get a lot of questions right and a lot of other people will get it wrong. It's very, very, very simple. Now, VUN means blood urea nitrogen, creatinine, you know, is the end product of creatine metabolism. You know that urea can be filtered and reabsorbed in the proximal tubules, so it's not a perfect clearance substance. You know that creatinine is, uh, is only filtered in the kidney and is either reabsorbed or secreted, so that makes it not a perfect um, uh, clearance substance, but the one that we commonly use uh, for creatinine clearance. Actually, inulin clearance is a lot better because that uh, actually uh, creatinine can be secreted or, uh, in other places, for example, the gut in very, very high levels, and in some cases they actually can be secreted. So it's not really the perfect one, but it's good enough. All right, now, if you take the normal uh, blood urea nitrogen level, which is roughly 9, 10 rather, and the normal creatinine level, which is usually 1 milligram per deciliter, uh, you should have basically a, a normal ratio would be 10 to 1. Agreed? Okay. When you have pre-renal azotemia, azotemia means an increase in BUN. That's what the term azotemia means. Pre means what? Before renal, before renal. So it's something, there's nothing wrong with the kidney. The problem is, is that your cardiac output's decreased. Any cause you know of a decrease in cardiac output, be it uh, congestive heart failure, myocardial infarction, cardiomyopathy, hypovolemia, anything you can think of, where the cardiac output is decreased, will produce a prerenal azotemia. Why? Okay, because your glomerular filtration rate will decrease. If you have less renal blood flow, guys, you're going to filter less. It's just that simple. Your glomerular filtration rate will decrease. So what will that do? Well, when it decreases, that gives the proximal tubule a little bit more time to reabsorb a little bit more urea than it normally would when the glomerular filtration rate is normal. So you're going to get an increased proximal tubule reabsorption of urea, okay? Now, what about creatinine? Well, we know that it's not reabsorbed, but we do know that you have to get rid of it through the, through the kidneys. And so even though it's not reabsorbed, if the glomerular filtration rate is decreased, there'll be a backup of it, okay? And you're not going to be able to clear it as fast. And so there will be an increase in serum creatinine, okay? Not that much in comparison to the increase in urea because it is being reabsorbed. So there's a disproportionate increase in BUN over the creatinine. And all you got to remember is uh, 15 to 1. Is that what I have up there? 15 to 1. So greater than a 15 to 1 BUN creatinine ratio means prerenal azotemia. Now to make sure you understand what I just said, the patient uh, has congestive heart failure. 
Okay, so you already know what it should be. Serum BUN is 80. Uh, creatinine is 2. Now, that's both of them are elevated, but what's the BUN creatinine ratio? 40 to 1. That means it's prerenal azotemia. The patient does not have acute tubular necrosis. You mean you could just say that? Just boom. Yep, I can. Mm -hmm. I can. And I am. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, let's say you truly have renal failure. You've got oliguria. You've got renal tubular casts in the urine. This patient's kidneys have failed. And you've got acute renal failure. Well, that's going to affect the urea and the creatinine equally. Okay? Because something's wrong with the kidney, so it has the same effect that it would have on the urea as it would creatinine. Both of them, you know, urea has to be filtered out of the, uh, through the kidney, and it's failed now. So does creatinine. And so what happens is both of them increase, but they increase proportionate to each other because they both have the same problem. Kidney screwed up, and so I, they can't get rid of urea, so it builds up. You can't get rid of creatinine, so it builds up too, but it, 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 it increases in proportion to each other because urea is not being reabsorbed anymore because the kidneys are shot. So example, <clears throat> BUN80. Creatinine 8, what's the ratio? 10 to 1, that means you have renal failure. Okay? So if you maintain that ratio of 10 to 1, even though your urea and creatinine are incre increasing, you means you have renal failure. If the ratio of B1 to creatinine is greater than 15 to 1, you have prerenal azotemia. It's just that simple. And those are usually the numbers they give, 80 over 8, 80 over 2. Those are the common ones they get. So that's the concept of that. Don't worry about post-renal azotemia. That's for part two. So that gets us into acute renal failure, the most common cause of which is ischemic, listen, listen, ischemic acute tubular necrosis. That's the thing that you worry about most when a patient's cardiac output decreases and they develop oliguria. That's the one that you pray it isn't. Now, remember... When a patient's cardiac output decreases and you have prerenal azotemia, if you have a decrease in glomerular filtration rate, don't you have oliguria from that too? Sure. So that's, that's what causes the, uh, the nephrologist and the clinician such a, such, you know, they get nervous because the patient, you know, has a decrease in cardiac output and they have oliguria. And you're starting to see the B1B creatinine going up and you say, oh my God, what is it? Is it prerenal or is it renal azotemia? Is this patient in renal failure? Simple. Got a B1, creatinine, ratio greater than 15 to 1. They're still prerenal. But if you don't take care of it, guess what they're going to develop? They're going to be, develop acute renal failure, ischemic acute tubular necrosis. In fact, the most common cause of ischemic acute tubular necrosis is not treating prerenal azotemia. Okay. All right. Now, where am I getting all this information? New England Journal of Medicine, article, Medical Progress, Acute Renal Failure. One of the best articles ever written on it. So all this information I've given you is straight stuff right from there. Okay, so ischemic ATN is the absolute worst one to get. Okay, BUN creatinine ratio will still be uh, 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 roughly the same as normal, roughly 10 to 1, 80 over 8. You're going to have this happening. You, this is another slide from a previous one that I showed you. This is looking reasonable. You can still see nuclei in that, but you're beginning to see like this one's fading out. These are lost in here, lost in here. Okay, look at these. These are really shot here. These are totally shot here. That's coagulation necrosis, right? <clears throat> and what will happen is these things will slough off, okay, block the lumen, and contribute to the oliguria, right? And uh, if you look in the urine, 
you're going to see casts. And the casts will be look like this with renal tubular cells in them. We call these renal tubular casts. So that combination of um, B1 creatinine ratio of about roughly 10 to 1, oliguria, renal tubular cast, diagnosis, ischemic acute tubular necrosis. Okay? Now, the reason why this one has such a bad uh, prognosis is this. When you have an ischemic cause for a tubular necrosis, not only are you killing the, uh, the tubular cells, but the basement membrane gets damaged. That's the bad thing. So in other words, you're taking away the, away the structural integrity of that tubule as well. Okay? Not good. Because as I told you, uh, when you have liver damage and you damage liver cells, when the liver cells regenerate themselves, are they regenerating the sinusoids? Are they regenerating the triads? Are they? No, they're just regenerating themselves. Well, similarly, if the base of membrane isn't there, and let's say the patient has recovered from acute tubular necrosis or is in the process of doing that, can you regenerate a, a, a renal tubular cell where there's no basement membrane? No. And so you can see that the, that the more uh, uh, necrosis that you have and the more that the basement membranes are destroyed, obviously the worse the prognosis because uh, you're never going to be able to regenerate them and you're never going to get back normal function again. That's what makes it such a bad, bad, bad disease. Okay. Now, I did tell you, I believe, on Monday, that there were two parts of the uh, nephron that were most susceptible to ischemia. And what were they? The straight portion of the proximal tubule and the thick ascending limb in what segment? Medullary segment. That's sodium, potassium, two chloride, co-transport pumps. So which, which parts of the nephron do you think are the ones that undergo this coagulation necrosis and sloughing off, those two. And so you'll see those fall off in the proximal tubule, and you'll see them falling off also in a thick ascending limb in the medullary segment. And that's all I really have to say about ischemic acute tubular necrosis. Now, you also know that Trevor taught you about drugs that were nephrotoxic, didn't you? Okay? And do you remember any of the names of those nephrotoxic drugs? How about genomycin? How about the aminoglycoside? Aren't they famous for nephrotoxicity? Okay, so just take a guess. If they're nephrotoxic, okay, what's the first thing they're going to hit when they get filtered from the, uh, from the uh, glomerulus? The proximal tubule. So nephrotoxic tubular necrosis related to drugs, okay, it just involves the proximal tubule. And interestingly, the basement membrane remains intact there. So what do you think about the prognosis of nephrotoxic acute tubular necrosis? Way better because of two reasons. One, you're only affecting the proximal tubules, not other parts. And two, you're not, not damaging the basement membrane. Here's what the New England Journal of Medicine said about the most common cause of nephrotoxic. It was aminoglycosides. They said that the second most common one was intra intravenous pilograms, the dye. That was number two. Now, let me tell you something. When I read that, I said to myself, ah, oh, that's not good. Why? Because who's the major per people that you see in a hospital? Older people. Guys, what's the glomerular filtration rate in an 80-year-old? What's the creatinine clearance? 40 millimeters, 4 mLs uh, of... Uh, uh, was it per minute? In other words, it's decreased. That's normal. 
All the people begin losing, uh, the creatinine clearance goes down and down and down. The glomerular filtration rate decreases and decreases and decreases as age occurs. Okay. So, this means then <clears throat> that if you're giving a drug that has no nephrotoxicity, and you're giving the doses of that drug in the same amount as you would a young person who has a normal glomerular filtration rate, then you're killing them. And obviously, that's happening. Because of aminoglycosides is the most common cause of nephrotoxic tubular necrosis. And obviously, clinicians are not decreasing the dose of the drug so that the patient doesn't get nephrotoxicity. Now you say, well, how are they going to know how to do that? You ever hear of a pharmacy? <laughs> you see, every pharmacy and every hospital has a computer program that will calculate for free for you what dose to give a patient if their glomerular filtration rate is decreased. There's only two things you have to give them, the body weight of the patient and the serum creatinine. That's all you got to give them. And they put that in the computer, and they can actually calculate very accurately what the creatinine clearance is just from that information. And then they can say, what drug you want to give them? I want to give them uh, an aminoglycoside, okay? And then based on that glomerular filtration rate for that patient, they can tailor the dose that you give the patient, how much and at what interval, so that the patient will not develop nephrotoxicity and be able not to go into this uh, entity. It's clear then, according to that article, even though they didn't say why that was, that people are not doing this. And we're killing the old people. Oh, that's a pretty strong statement. Well, it's true. It's true. It's true. What if that's your parent? What if that's you when you're old? Okay? So make it personal a little bit, and then maybe that might give you the impetus to make sure you never forget what I just told you. All old people who get medications... Especially if you know they have nephrotoxic, they have nephrotoxic side effects, you better take advantage of that pharmacy thing and make sure that your patient gets the appropriate dose at the appropriate interval so they don't die because of your poor care of the patient. Understand? Good. All right. That's the end of that one. <clears throat> All right. Pyelonephritis. Here's the big thing for a pyelonephritis, guys. How are you going to separate it from a lower urinary tract infection? Actually, very easy. Now, who do we see acute pyelonephritis and lower urinary tract infections and more commonly anyway? <clears throat> Women. And why is that? They're short urethra. So let's make sure you understand this. Acute pyelonephritis is a systemic infection, and it's, a, it's an infection of your kidney proper. Well, how should it get up in the kidney? Don't you have, when a urine goes into the bladder, uh, isn't there, a, in that ureteral vesicle junction, uh, doesn't the muscle squeeze on that so that there's no reflux of urine from the bladder into the ureter? In a, in a normal individual, yes, that's true. But not all people have a normal vesicle ureteral junction. And so that what happens is, if you get a bladder infection, and this junction is incompetent, you have what is called vesicle ureteral reflux, then infected urine now can reflux, particularly when you're micturating, when you're peeing, can reflux up into ureters, and you get an ascending infection that can go all the way up into the kidney. 
That's called vesicle ureteral reflux. And so they'll ask you, what's the mechanism of all urinary tract infections, be it urethritis, cystitis, ureteritis, pelvitis, or pyelonephritis? Answer, ascending infection. Ascending from where? Right at the beginning of the urethra. Every woman, and has nothing to do with cleanliness whatsoever, has the same E. coli serotype that is in her stool at the introitus of her urethra and her vagina. That is just normal, okay? And so you can see that with trauma or with certain types of serotypes of E. coli, it can from that point ascend right up the urethra into the bladder, and if you have an incompetent vesicle ureteral junction up your ureters into your into your kidneys. So all urinary tract infections are ascending, ascending from the beginning of the urethra on up. Now, when you have acute, colis, uh, acute cystitis, you have dysuria, that's painful urination, increased frequency, suprapubic pain, but do you have fever, yes or no? No. Do you have flank pain when you just pound gently on it? No. Will you have white blood cell casts, casts with neutrophils in them? No. Why? Because they develop where? In the renal tubule. They don't develop in a ureter. They don't develop in the bladder. They develop right up in the kidney in the tubule. So fever, flank pain, white blood cell casts means what? Acute pyelonephritis. There you go. Will you have all that information on a test? Sure. They'll tell you whether they have fever. <clears throat> they'll tell you whether they have flank pain. And they'll also tell you whether there's cast in the urine. Okay? So it's ascending infection, mechanism, incompetent vesicle ureteral junction. This usually shows up right at the uh, newborn little girls. They start running into problems with this right away. And then, so that, that particular problem, okay? And that'll be a problem for the rest of their lives. Okay, now sometimes they can do urologic surgery to alter that junction and make it a little bit more competent, but that doesn't always work. I have a young lady last year that had that, both kidneys. She had a stent in there, okay, because she had vesicle ureteral reflux. One kidney was already gone from pylo, so yeah, she had chronic, and now the other one was starting to go, and so she's actually in some problems here because her only uh, thing now is renal transplant after a time. Nice, beautiful young lady. She's a third-year medical student now. She's going to have problems big time. Big time. Started when she was a little girl. Okay, very important. This is very, very common, this thing, okay? <clears throat> now I'm going to show you some pictures. This uh, here is a, is, a, is a kidney and a patient with pyelonephritis, and all these white spots in here are abscesses. Okay, so it's a, it's a, uh, it, this is acute pyelonephritis. Now, if you have constant and recurrent attacks of acute pyelonephritis, you can become chronic, just like any uh, acute inflammation left untreated can go chronic, right? Acute hepatitis, chronic hepatitis, okay? And you get chronic pyelonephritis, of course, you end up at the, the risk of ending, uh, having hypertension and eventual renal failure related to that if both kidneys have chronic pyelonephritis. Well, let me show you this diagram to show how you're going to, on the boards, know that you have chronic pyelonephritis. Okay, you're going to have a scarred kidney. <clears throat> so this is showing a scar on the cortex. Now look at this. This is the normal configuration of the renal calyces. They normally have a concave appearance. See that? See that? 
See that? When you have chronic pyelonephritis because of all the inflammation and scar tissue, you get blunting of the calyces. That's what they call it. Blunting of the calyces. And notice that the blunting occurs right underneath where the scar is. So you see the scar? Blunt. Scar? Blunt. Can you see that on an intravenous pyelogram? You bet. And when you see it, what does it mean? Chronic pyelonephritis. Are you saying that they actually had an intravenous pyelogram with blunting of the calyces on part one? Yes, I am. Part two? Yes, I am too. So what does blunting of the calyces mean, please? Chronic pyelonephritis. Very good. Now, can drugs produce a type of nephritis involving the interstitium and tubules? Oh, yeah. It can be acute. It can be chronic. Okay, and it's going to be easy to diagnose. You want to know why? Because you're going to have fever when you're taking that drug, and you're going to develop a rash. Now, anyone with half a brain in their head should know that if you got a patient, you put them on a drug, let's say a penicillin drug for some whatever it is, okay, and all of a sudden they start developing fever and develop a rash. If you're not thinking that that fever and that rash has something to do with the drug that you gave you. I mean, you got to have rocks in your head. But then throw on top of that oliguria. Okay. Uh, all right, all right. A little oliguria there. I mean, dog, oh, there's a message coming from above. I think I'd worry about that drug there. We got fever. We got a rash. And we got oliguria. And you can even throw on top of that. Uh, they'll have uh, eosinophiluria. What does that mean? They get eosinophils in the urine which is absolutely pathognomonic for this. That's called acute drug-induced interstitial nephritis. And it's incredibly, it's becoming more and more common in the United States, and it's becoming a very common cause of chronic renal failure in patients. It relates to drugs, and if you look at Cecil's and all those books, there are so many drugs that can do this, it's unbelievable. Lasix can do this. Uh, all the penicillins can do this. In fact, methicillin is the prototype of acute interstitial nephritis related to drugs. So many, 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 many drugs. So what's the, what's the key? You put a patient on a drug, they get fever, they get a rash, and they have oliguria, boom! Discard the drug, stop the drug, never give them that drug again. Because it's kind of a combination, type 1 hypersensitivity and type 4 hypersensitivity. Never give them that drug again, ever, ever. Otherwise they can run into problems with renal failure. Good, got that done. Do these look normal? Say no. Why? Because it's pathology. Very good. <laughs> you guys are so good. You know, you guys are really good. And you play along. That, that's the nice part. You know, when you don't play along, you know, and you're so serious and you can't take life nice, you've got to have a little bit of fun. This is not a funny situation, Dr. Gully, on my life is at stake. But at least, you know, come on, you've got to, you've got to kind of let up a little bit. You've got to let up a little bit. You've got to exercise. You've got to enjoy yourself a little bit. Okay, just consider it a temporary... No, it's not a setback. Not a setback, a temporary obstacle in your path to becoming a full-fledged physician. Even though most of you are already, okay, a good many of you, unfortunately, in this country, they have to go and have you go through the whole thing again, which is absolutely retarded in my appearance, because, in my opinion, because I have found from my experience that foreign medical school grads are oftentimes, and most of the time, brighter than the ones we have from here. And so it makes me wonder 
why we do that. <laughs> I don't really know. I think it's really bad, personally. Okay. Now, this is abnormal because in the uh, renal, uh, in the, uh, in the renal medulla, we're having this, this, this discoloration. And as a matter of fact, if we look here, this is a pale infarct. And actually, if you look here, there's nothing there. The renal papilla went somewhere. Where did it go? Into the toilet bowl. And that's called the ring sign. Because if you did an intravenous pilogram, there would be an empty space there. This is analgesic nephropathy. This is that combination of acetaminophen plus aspirin, deadly duo, over a long period of time, cumulative. Acetaminophen is producing free radicals. Remember, because of the poor circulation in the medulla, it's doing some free radical damage on the tubular cells in the medulla. Then you throw on top of that aspirin, What's that going to block? PGE2, which is normally a vasodilator. And so who's in control of urinal blood flow now? Angiotensin 2. And what is it? It's a vasoconstrictor. i got some more bad news for you. The vasoconstrictor, what vessel? The efferent arterial. Guess what the, where the peritubular capillaries derive from? The efferent arterial. So by having vasoconstriction of the efferent arterial, are you affecting all those peritubular capillaries that are going around? You're collecting tubules in the renal medulla? Uh-huh. So is that producing ischemia? Yes. So you have free radical damage and ischemia. No wonder why the renal papilla necrose and gets slumped, and that's called renal papillary necrosis. Okay? So aspirin and acetaminophen combination can do that. Uh, another totally different thing that can do this is diabetic, uh, diabetic uh, nephropathy can do this too because of ischemia. Another thing, acute pyelonephritis because of abscess formation can do this. Sickle cell, sickle cell trait and disease can do this too, but for different mechanisms than, um, than the aspirin and acetaminophen. Understand? Okay. Chronic renal failure. It's kind of a... Chronic renal failure is a kind of a good test on a student, I think. Let's say you're, you have chronic renal failure, which means that you have a B1 creatinine ratio 10 to 1 for more than three months. By definition, that means you have chronic renal failure, according to the definitions. Okay, without looking at this, we should be able to figure out what would go wrong if, you're re if both kidneys fail. Okay, so let's think. Okay, well, first of all, uh, we're not going to be able to excrete the things that we normally excrete. Okay, so those things will build up, so we'll probably retain salt and stuff like that, huh? Let's think about erythropoietin. Are we going to be able to make that? No, so what should we end up with? Normocytic anemia, corrective reticular site count, less than 2%. Okay, so that's going to happen. How about getting rid of all those organic acids that we have to get rid of on a daily basis? Are we going to be able to get rid of them? No, so what's that going to produce? Metabolic acidosis, increased gap or normal gap? Increase gap. Okay, if you have metabolic acidosis, do bones try to buffer all that acid? Sure, so bones are buffering your excess hydrogen ions. What could you develop? Bone disease, like what? Osteoporosis. Are the proximal tubules screwed up in chronic renal failure? Sure. Is there an enzyme there? Sure, it's called 1-alpha-hydroxylase. So what does that normally do? It second hydroxylates vitamin D. So what else are you going to have whenever you have renal failure? Hypovitaminosis D, you have vitamin D deficiency. Okay, so what does that mean? You're going to get hypocalcemia, hypophosphatemia. So what does that mean? You're going to have osteomalacia. 
So you have two bone diseases. You have osteoporosis because you're buffering and, and just wearing away the entire bone matrix. And you also have osteomalation. Your legs start going out like that. And what's your parathyroid's doing when you have this chronic hypocalcemia? Well, they're reacting to it by putting out more parathermone, which again is going to be ripping away at your bone. Okay, but what do we call that type of, of parathyroid? Is that primary hyperparathyroidism or is that secondary? Secondary hyperparathyroidism. There you go. Okay, and then of course the B1 creatinine ratio is like 80 over 8 and things like that. So yeah, I hit most of the key things in here uh, that one sees, and that's basically all you, all you really need to know. You can basically, if you know what normal renal function is, you can figure out what happens when it fails. Are these normal? Say no. Why? This is pathology. Very good. What if I told you this patient has essential hypertension over 10 years? And it's been not very, very well controlled because the person was non-compliant, didn't take their medication. So that's pretty much 10 years of, of really poor uh, blood pressure control. So we got a kidney that looks like this, and that cobblestone appearance. What do we call that? Nephrosclerosis. And what's the underlying disease that's causing that cobblestone shrunken kidney, hyaline arteriolosclerosis, because there's decreased blood flow, you're getting tubular atrophy, the glomeruli are fibrosing off, renal function starting to go down, and eventually can go into renal failure related to this. But let's say the same person then one day wakes up with an incredible headache and has blurry vision. And it's really, really hurting big time. He's getting a little dizzy, goes to the doctor, blood pressure is 240 over 140. Okay, you look in the retina, the dude has, has papilledema with flame hemorrhages and hard and soft exudates, grade 4, hypertensive retinopathy, BON creatinine ratio, 80 over 8. This dude's in big time trouble. What's he got? Malignant hypertension. Okay, that's what this is. They call this oftentimes the flea-bitten kidney. I don't know where the fleas are, but whatever. They call it a flea-bitten kidney because oftentimes you don't really see it too well here except maybe there, there, and there. They're basically petechia, actually, uh, that are visible on the surface of the kidney. And that's because of, of these vessel um, changes. Remember that hyperplastic arteriolosclerosis we said with the onion skinning? That's there. And these blood vessels are rupturing. And basically producing kind of petechial lesions on the cortex. That's the term flea-bitten kidney. That's basically all you need to know except one more thing. They do ask treatment on this, and let's see what you say the treatment is. How are you going to get the blood pressure down? Intravenous nitroprusside is the answer. And that's as far as they go with malignant hypertension. So in other words, you notice that they have central nervous system edema, and, and the papilledema, and you get, don't get that blood pressure down, they're going to stroke out, uh, and they're going to die. I want you to look at this kidney, please. Okay? You see anything abnormal? Say yes. Okay. Do you see uh, any areas that are pale and kind of depressed looking? Yeah, kind of pale, and that looks kind of depressed. Pale, kind of depressed. That doesn't mean that's sad. It just means that it's sunken in a little bit, Okay. Okay, so it's pale and it's depressed. So if I took a section right through one of those things, and I told you also that this patient had an irregular, irregular pulse, what do you think I'd see? I'd see pale infarction with coagulation necrosis because what you're looking at are infarcts. Okay, and remember, because this is a pretty solid organ, 
Uh, instead of being hemorrhagic, they're going to be pale. And with that history, I clearly told you the mechanism for it. What was a regular, regular pulse? Atrial fib. And what is atrial fib most dangerous for? Embolization. And so they produce multiple emboli. Unfortunately, in this case, to the kidney, producing multiple pale infarcts of the kidney. This exact picture was on board. Many, many people missed. You know what they called it? Pyelonephritis. Pyelonephritis with big areas like that, pyelonephritis would have little white dots all over it of microabscesses. And look at this. These things are depressed. What does that have to do with an irregular, regular pulse anyway? <laughs> Nothing is the answer to that question. That woke a couple people up. I'm sorry, I was doing too close over here. This guy doesn't even respond. Nothing. Nothing happened to this guy. That's why he's wearing his hat. There's two reasons why he's wearing his hat. He's not going to get spit on, and secondly, he can put the hat down, and I can't see his eyes closed. <laughs> now, he's been very attentive, actually. I like this kid. He's a good kid. He is a kid, too. My, my son is, is about 11 years older than you. You could be a grandson to me, actually. <laughs> You're so young. All right. Have you seen this before? Yes, you did, but in a smaller version. Under what growth alteration? Atrophy. Because what is this? This dilatation of the renal pelvis, please. Hydronephrosis. So when you have hydronephrosis and increased pressure pressing on the cortex and medulla, what happens to that? You get ischemia and atrophy. We call this compression atrophy. Very similar, in a sense, to the cystic fibrosis ducts that are filled with the inspissated mucus, pressures impacted back on the glands, they undergo compression atrophy. So remember, this picture's been on many exams, guys. Now look at it. Look how thin the cortex and medulla And gosh, look at this. These are very dilated, very, very dilated renal pelvises. Now what's the most common cause of this? Stone. All right. This exact picture was on boards. Name me. Staghorn calculus. Big deal. What's the urine pH? Alkaline. What's it smell like? Well, I don't smell urine. I'm sorry. I'm not answering. Oh, you better answer. What's the urine smell like? Ammonia. So that means, therefore, there must be a what enzyme, what, what organism would have to be doing this? A urease producer. And what do you think it most commonly is? Proteus. There you go. You learned that in microbiology. And it's because the urease producers, they break urea down into ammonia. You get an alkaline pH. And that's why a staghorn calcium, uh, staghorn calculus is magnesium, listen, ammonium phosphate. Okay, and it only develops in patients that have infections due to urease producers. E. coli is not a urease producer, but proteus species are, and they predispose to these stones. Now, fortunately, you don't pass these stones. Okay, can you imagine passing that stone in your ureter? <laughs> I mean, I mean, no. No. Oh, can we get methyltrypsy on this and break it up? Sure, if you want 15,000 bouts of renal colic, yeah. I think that would be a good thing. I kind of like that idea because I love pain. Oh, that's nice. Then you need to see a psychiatrist before you see a urologist. Okay? You're going to have to extract these things. You know, you're going to have to do surgery and remove it. In fact, might as well take the kidney with it because it's ruined. So they love staghorn calculus question. 
and showing this picture and asking you about the microbiology behind it, okay? And so it's urease producer, alkaline urine pH, ammonia smell to urine. Okay, we're talking now. Could you focus this? I know this does a little bit better. <coughs> the other way. That's good. I wanted that to be. We're talking about tumors of the kidney. I'm going to make this easy for you. Okay. This is a kidney. All right. So you got to got to start there. Okay. Can you see at least that there's something wrong up here, like a mass up there? Yes or no? Okay. If you see a mass in a kidney and it's an adult, it's a renal adenocarcinoma. If they said that this was a kid, just call it a Wilms tumor because Wilms kids get Wilms tumors, adults get renal adenocarcinomas. Okay. So anytime you see a big old mass in the kidney, don't pick metastasis, things really go there. Don't pick something benign, it's cancer. And it's a renal adenocarcinoma if it's an adult, or, or it's a Wilms tumor if it's a kid. Okay? They derive from the proximal tubule, and the most common cause is smoking. They make lots of ectopic hormones, erythropoietin. What else? Parathormone-like peptides, so what does that produce? Hypercalcemia, very good. They have a nasty habit of doing what? Because they don't know that they're a carcinoma. Invade the renal vein. They like to do that too. I don't think I have much more to say about renal adenocarcinoma. This is what they look like. They're very clear cells. Actually, they're full of, uh, of glycogen. And that's that. You know what, remind, you know what I remind you? The last, the last thing I said yesterday, I should have told you. I think I said actinomycin was the treatment for cryptococcus. I hope you all, or the cryptococcus histo thing. I hope you realize that was a stupid, very dumb statement. It was made in the process of being extremely tired. It really was what? Ampotericin. <laughs> you were very nice to me. You didn't all scream out, Ampotericin. You just accepted it and knew that it was just plain stupid and tired. Okay, that was nice. I appreciate it. All right, now listen to this, and this is how you're going to get this right. Okay? I don't like this. This is a kid. I hate anything bad in kids, but we have to show it to you. Do you see anything wrong with his back? He's got a flank mass. I'm going to say he's got a flank mass, and he has hypertension. What does he have to have? Wilms tumor. There you go. He's got a flank mass. He's got hypertension. He's got a Wilms tumor. What's the hypertension due to? It's making renin. It's making renin, and that's producing the hypertension. It's about the fourth most common cancer in kids, usually unilateral, and produces a flank mass usually. Okay? The histology is kind of interesting. What does this look like? It looks like a little baby glomerulus. Okay? In a sense, what it is, Wilms tumor is a cancer where you're duplicating the embryogenesis of the kidney. So everything is primitive. It's like it should be in a fetus, except the kid's an adult. And it's malignant. And so we see these things. We see even rhabdomyoblasts with striations. It's a horrible thing. Likes to metastasize to the lung. There are certain types that are autosomal dominant, and they involve chromosome 11. And you better know this. They have two physical diagnostic findings that are consistent on exams. One is aniridia. That means an absent iris. And the second is hemihypertrophy of an extremity, meaning that one extremity will be bigger than the other. That's a sign that the Wilms tumor has a genetic basis. The bad one they hit the most is aniridia, the absent iris in the eye. Okay, I want to show you 
the most common urine abnormality that we actually see in a laboratory, and that's the abnormality associated with a lower or upper urinary tract infection. And what we're going to do at the same time is explain a little bit of those dipstick things and what you would expect to see in a, in a run-of-the-mill lower urinary tract infection or acute pyelonephritis. So let me introduce you to uh, some of these cells here. The arrow is pointing to what neutrophils look like in urine. Okay, they're just kind of granular little things. You really you can't really see the trilobes, but these are neutrophils, okay? Now, I think this you can easily tell what that is. It kind of has a reddish hue to it, so does that. So what are those? Red blood cells. And if this was a true specimen, these little things here would be kind of jiggling around like Brownian movement, okay? They would be jiggling around, so those must be bacteria. And if you're going to play odds on what it would be, it would be E. coli. So what we have are neutrophils, RBCs, and bacteria. Now, the dipstick will pick up all three of these things. Okay, on the dipstick, we have a dipstick portion that picks up blood. And so we would uh, get a positive uh, dipstick for blood because of these RBCs. I mean, only two in a high-power field would be yet it's that sensitive. Mm -hmm. So hematuria is very frequent. In fact, in some cases, and I'm sure some of you women can attest to that, it can be really hemorrhagic, and you actually can see blood come out. It's called hemorrhagic cystitis. And, so, and most of the time, that's E. coli, but sometimes it's adenovirus is famous for hemorrhagic cystitis. So we have a positive dipstick for blood because of these. Now, also, the dipsticks have leukocyte esterase, and that's measuring the enzyme in leukocytes, okay? So we would have a positive dipstick for leukocyte esterase because there are neutrophils here. So that'd be positive. Third... Most urinary pathogens are nitrate reducers, which means they convert nitrate to nitrite. And on a dipstick, they have a little section there for nitrites. And of course, since E. coli is a nitrate reducer, there should be nitrites in the urine. Dipstick positive for that. So if you've got a patient, woman or man, who has uh, dysuria, Increased frequency, suprapubic pain, and then you have a, uh, a urinary urine uh, uh, sediment that has neutrophils, RBCs, and also uh, bacteria or dipstick findings of hematuria, leukocyte esterase positive, nitrate positive. That's a urinary tract infection. Now, your next step is, is it lower or upper? So, how are you going to tell the difference there? Well, if the patient has fever, what would it be? Upper. The patient has flank pain, what would it be? Upper. The patient has white blood cell cast, what would it be? Upper. If none of those things are present, what do they have? Lower. Good. Now here's a trick. You ready? Let's say you have someone with this urine increased frequency. They have neutrophils in the urine, maybe even a couple RBCs, but you don't see a single bacteria there at all. You culture it, and it's totally negative for bacteria, but the patient does have dysuria. The patient does have positive leukocyte esterase, nitrite, nitrite's negative, the standard urine culture is negative, and it's a sexually active person. What do you think? It's chlamydia. It's chlamydia. Chlamydia. You see, the normal urine cultures don't pick up chlamydia. It's, uh, it's the most common sexually transmitted disease. It's chlamydia. Chlamydia trachomatis. In men, we call it nonspecific urethritis. In women, we call it the acute urethral syndrome. Okay. Uh, we also use a term called sterile pyuria. 
In a sense that that means we don't have bacteria present, but we do have neutrophils present. The routine bacterial cultures are negative. Okay, so we, we call that sterile pyuria. So now you know one cause of sterile pyuria is not is a, is a is a chlamydial infection. But another one they're looking for, guys, is tuberculosis. See, the most common organ that 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 the miliary TB goes to is the kidney, and so you're going to have TB in the urine, and it will host a pyuria in the urine, and it will be sterile because you know urine cultures don't pick up TB. And so that'd be another example of sterile pyuria. So the two I want you to remember are chlamydia, okay, and TB as causes of that. Okay, you've seen this before. This is a little papillary lesion in the bladder. Okay, this is the bladder that's been removed. There's a big papillary lesion over here. What's the most common cause of transitional cell carcinoma in the bladder? Smoking. And what's that dye? Analon dye. And what's that chemotherapy agent used in treating uh, Wegener's? Cyclophosphamide. What's another complication of cyclophosphamide other than this? Hemorrhagic cystitis. And how do you prevent that from happening? Mesna. Very good. That's wonderful. Good. Penis. Oh, what's their importance?